Before we get to our guest, I want to talk about our NOAA subscription. CD Media is not just a local news company. We're not just a military company. We're not even just a national company. CDM is a global news organization that has reporters from the Middle East to Eastern Europe to the Balkans to Asia to Latin America to the United States. Put us in your daily scan and get the news, tip of the spear news from around the world. I know that people don't like ads, however. They don't like pop-up ads on their phone. They don't like to see ads on the websites. But you know what? We have to make money. Seriously, we have to support ourselves, and that's one of the ways we do it. However, if you don't like ads, you can sign up for our no-ad subscription. And guess what? You get access to our dozen newspapers around the world, our dozen news organizations, and you get access to all this quality, high-quality content. So, so give us a few bucks, sign up for your no-ad subscription, and you'll get access to all of the sites with a block on the ads, and you'll be very happy. And now let's get to our guest. So let me start and just say welcome welcome to Global Conversations in Plain Sight. We just had a tooting from, from New York in the firehouse. We're here today with Vera Sharav, who is the director and producer of uh, Never Again is Global, which is a five-part documentary series on what happened during the Holocaust. Vera, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for inviting me. Well, Vera, you know, this docu this five-part documentary series is extraordinary because you've interviewed Holocaust survivors, you've gotten into the weeds of the corporations that were behind the Holocaust, and you've aligned it with what is happening now. I, I want to ask you as a, as a director and producer, first of all, how did you come to, because I'm always interested in the artistry of a documentary as a television producer, how did you come to the choices? Because what is happening in the COVID era is so big, and then you whittled it down to compare it to the Holocaust. How did you come to decide on what angles to focus on in your series? Well, first of all, you have to understand, I never did a film before. So I didn't, Congratulations. <laughs> I didn't abide by what you're supposed to do. I knew one thing, there would be no script. It would not be predetermined what uh, the message would be or anything like that. It, it was totally organic. I trusted the fact that people would be able to tell their story and their truths and their experience and their observations and, you know, and their own intelligence. And that's really what led the film, and that's what makes it totally unique. Um, I realized, first of all, that there aren't all that many decades that there will be survivors who actually experienced what it was, who remember. And you are you are a survivor of the Holocaust. Yes, I was a child. I was a small child. I was three and a half when my family and I were deported from our home in Romania 
and turn it into a concentration camp in the Ukraine. So, and I was at the camp for three years. My father died of typhus, which was an infectious disease that was rampant in all the <clears throat> concentration camps and ghettos throughout Europe. It's simply because of the lack of hygiene, the lack of nutrition, and the cold. So I, many people say they don't remember too much from their early childhood. Well, I do remember quite a bit. I remember- Do you think because, because it was traumatic? I mean, sometimes people, people talk, psychiatrists talk about the trauma of early childhood having a huge impact in their lives and, and remembering it. Um, no, I just, I recall when I need to. It, it has not been a constant, you know, in my life. But there are things that trigger memories and especially trigger danger. Mm -hmm. I can detect danger. You know, that sort of thing. And I can, I can connect the dots. I do connect dots. I see the underlying patterns. But this is something that really anyone can do if they give it a chance. But people are taught not to really trust their own instinct, but to obey authority. The experts, that's what we've constantly been told, trust the experts. Well, I tend not to. And in fact, uh, my disobedience at age six and a half or so saved my life. So of course, that is ingrained in me, that memory. As I say, it, it didn't rule my life, but I will disobey if my gut tells me, don't do it. So the purpose of, of the, the documentary series was to enlighten people and let them know that history stands before you and it will be repeated if you do not wake up. Is, is that the message that you want? To, sense, but to hear it from those who lived it. Mm -hmm. uh, this is very important. Um, and because we won't be around forever, and I don't think that this film could be reproduced again. <laughs> they, this is the first film about a Holocaust that was in fact directed by a survivor that tells you right off the bat. So it isn't the interpretation of the director and, and, and scriptwriter and all of that, but rather the people themselves, they are the stars. And this is survivors and children of survivors, children of victims and grandchildren of survivors, as well as, you know, we have doctors and scientists, but they're not the stars. Um, and also we have German people whose families also uh, lived at the time and they had different, different positions. I mean, we have the nephew of Sophie and Hans Scholl who were young um, students, medical students in the White Rose, it was called. And 
they were trying to alert the German people not to obey, not to go along. That This was not the kind of government that they wanted. So why go along? Well, they were betrayed uh, and sent to the Gestapo came, picked them up, and they were beheaded. But they are a symbol of resistance, which uh, children in German schools are taught about the, the heroism of Sophie and Hans Scholl. The problem is that right now uh, they're following orders exactly as they did then, as are people in all of Western Europe, Australia, Canada, and of course the United States, at least the majority of people. Not everyone, though. That's the good news. It's not everyone. And um, at any rate, I, I felt that I needed to document this, document, you know, kind of the possibly the last generation of survivors. Um, there's another aspect to it, which is that everyone who attempts to raise the issue of the Holocaust in relation to the repressive government orders that we've been living under for the last three years is immediately silenced and pummeled. How dare you invoke the Holocaust to now? Well, as a survivor, I decided, I guess I have to do it. I mean, Bobby Kennedy was pilloried for mentioning Anne Frank. Uh, well, he was right. But of course he was. Of course he was. Course he was. And, and, and his, his sister who criticized him publicly was wrong, and including his wife. I'll just say that. I mean, it was wrong for because there is a correlation of lockdowns. You're given, you know, I mean, just not not having medical autonomy alone is is uh pretty insane. Well, uh the medical establishment was captured under the Nazis and became partners and really the, the main uh, movers of a lot of the genocidal uh, policies. And the medical establishment today are the facilitators as well of what's happening. So yeah. let's go through, let's go through the parallels as you see it as a Holocaust survivor and what you've documented in the film. <clears throat> Well, for one thing, it is government taking over all your aspects of life. You are not allowed to make decisions for yourself, for how you want to live, or where you can go, when you can go. You know, there uh, were lockdowns in a sense. It's a little bit different, but still, when you have a time of evening where you're not allowed to go out anymore or neighborhoods you can't go to and stores you can't, uh, frequent schools being totally under government dictate, all of those sort of things. And, you know, one of the most uh, harrowing parallels occurred rather early in March and April of 2020. And that was when in Western Europe, Again, Australia, Canada, the, at least five states in the United States, orders were given to hospitals not to treat the elderly. 
they were eventually, they were essentially condemned to be medically murdered. In my state of New York, then Governor Cuomo issued the order not to treat in hospitals, to send them to nursing homes. But before he issued the order, he did two things. Number one, he gave total immunity both to hospitals and nursing homes. And he predicted, he predicted that this virus in nursing homes will be like fire through dry grass. I remember that. Exactly what he was doing. And for this adding, you know, insult to injury, he received an Emmy for his uh, briefing on television every morning. Now, this particular mass medical murder, and this went on everywhere in Canada, the huge doses of midazolam were injected into the elderly. They were getting rid of an economic burden, make no mistake. And these are the wealthiest countries in the world. This project, this policy, harks back to the Nazi policy, which was, it was called T4. And it began in 1939. It began with German, German infants and young children under the age of three who were in some way or other disabled. They were removed from their parents who were told that they would be getting special treatment to improve their health. In fact, they were medically murdered. And then medical doctors signed fake death certificates informing the parents that the children died natural death. The children, the next, the next group were older disabled children and then the mentally ill, they were totally annihilated en masse, and then the nursing home residents. This T4 program, I mean, you know, hundreds of thousands of Germans were medically murdered. And partly they were doing it to cleanse, they thought, the genetic pool, as if by killing those alive, they would be preventing the births of others. That's in accordance with the eugenic fake science. And also to free up hospital beds for wounded soldiers who were, whose lives were more valuable than the elderly and the disabled. And we now have that kind of a protocol as well. People don't know it, but there is a protocol which actually was published in The Lancet, which designates a value on human lives. The most valuable who are to get the greatest uh, medical treatment, whatever they need, are adolescents and young adults because they have a long productive life ahead of them. Except for now, except for now, Vera, we have many young 
like 18 to 49 year olds, the, the working ages who are being harmed by the COVID shots. This is, this is now a different um, objective. The objective that you're mentioning has to do with the decision to depopulate, to eliminate more than three quarters of the global human population. But the, um, that protocol is in hospitals and this is uh, in all hospitals in the United States. Um, and people have, have testified as to how elderly relatives were essentially taken out away from, families could not even visit them. Families were even not allowed to speak to them on the iPhone. It is horrific when uh, many of the people what? I've interviewed that that uh, you know if you if you're not allowed into the hospital to advocate for your loved one, uh, even though you might have a health proxy, the health proxy all the time is not uh, adhered to. And I have even interviewed some people where uh, they they did the family and the health proxy person did not. It was it wasn't on their health health documentation that they did not want to be resuscitated. Yet in some of the hospitals now, they, yes. they doctors will put on the charts do not resuscitate. Right, and families have actually it, when it's in motion and they're not in the hospital, they have begged for the nurses to save their loved one, and they don't do it because they say the doctor put do not resuscitate on the chart. And, you know, this is hard for people to understand that this is actually happening in America. I mean, you know, it was one thing to, to always have a second opinion. Decades ago, if you were going to have an operation, you could have a second opinion. Yeah. Now it's their way or the highway. Right. Well, this is the point that medicine has become a organ of government. The Hippocratic Oath has been discarded completely. And we need to consider that both under the Nazis, the idea of the greater good, they called it for the good of the folk. Mm -hmm. What does the greater good really mean? The greater good means that you are giving a blank approval to multiple crimes against individuals. You're making it all right to deprive the individuals of their rights for the so-called greater good. You know, the so, iron the, the, this the, is fascism. It is fascism. I agree with that. And and I and I have called it medical trafficking because I've covered human trafficking all of its faces, including organ trafficking, for almost a quarter mm -hmm. of a century worldwide. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I, I think is astounding to me is how we in Western civilization and globally uh, have adhered to commodifying human beings, especially coming out of the Holocaust in the eras of 1948, when it became the generation of human rights. And now it seems that we're going backwards. And the, pe the very people who 10 years ago were fighting for human rights are now adhering to this insane, demoralizing, 
corrosive normalization of commodifying human beings. How did we get here, Vera? We got here, I'll tell you, a lot of things. Number one, yes, there were the Nuremberg trials. However, it was only a tiny, minuscule number who were tried. The Nazis really did not disappear. Hold on, to, hold on to that thought, because I just want to interject here that even though the Nuremberg trials went on, they got to the, the medical trials, which was, I think, the second trial was very important because that established that there were to be no medical, quote unquote, experiments the way that the Nazis had developed it uh, during the Holocaust. So we're actually going we're, we're going against that which we criticized in society going back years following the Holocaust. I was going to say that the Nuremberg trials were in many ways a show trial because only a, a minuscule number of the perpetrators were tried. However, the doctor's trial was the most important one because it was during the doctor's trial that the medical atrocities were brought to public light. Mm -hmm. And the most important document to come out of the doctor's trial is the Nuremberg Code. And the Nuremberg Code mandates that every human being on earth has the inalienable right to voluntary informed consent to medical experimentation, but it really is expanded to medical intervention of any kind. And the Nuremberg Code is very, very detailed in specifics, just what it is that each person is entitled to know, to be informed fully. Everything, the purpose of the experiment, everything that is being used, whatever is in the product, if the product is used or if it, uh, and every risk that may be involved. And people have a right to say no. Now, what's important about the Nuremberg Code above all other medical ethics uh, codes is that it cannot ever be changed. Not a word can be altered because it was part of a criminal trial, the verdict, and it was never challenged. It stands, as I like to say, like the Ten Commandments. You cannot change a word. And that's the very reason that the medical establishment and governments don't like it. And they and lawyers, unfortunately, have been pretty lazy about citing it. But however, when they did, it was absolutely accepted in American courts, and it's, it is incorporated in the International Criminal Code. Which uh, is ironic when you think of what's going on now, because you, you actually have the UN set up after the Holocaust based upon the universal human rights. The WHO was established, 
and incorporating the Nuremberg in, into the philosophy of the reason behind the UN and the WHO. And the entire apparatus right now is in breach of that which they were established under. Right. And that's okay. So now you asked whether the Nazi uh, mentality, the, the culture, uh, that it didn't disappear. No, it didn't. And the way in which, one of the ways is Operation Paperclip. Explain that to the audience. If yeah. Operation Paperclip was the smuggling of more than 1,600 Nazi scientists, engineers, and doctors into the United States against the specific order of President Harry Truman. Uh, and this was done by the what became the CIA. At that time, it was OSS. The CIA smuggled these Nazis, and these were top Nazi scientists, into the United States and scattered them all over into the scientific institutions, medical institutions. Some of them were in the uh, arm, you know, the military, like Fort Detrick. And what these scientists did was, first of all, they were allowed to continue their work as they had been doing it under the Nazis. And secondly, they trained a generation of American scientists and doctors how to do things the Nazi way. Now, just think about it. You've heard of the CIA mind control experiments. Those were exactly the Nazi doctors that had taught Americans. In other words, human lives became very expendable. And also, I think that there's a correlation that people maybe maybe do not understand in history, which is the, the connection between the eugenics growth here in the United States with those who were doing eugenics in Germany at the time. Well, actually, uh, eugenics and particularly, you know, the sterilization, mass sterilization, all that, that was imported. The Nazis imported it from the United States. The United States was first to uh, engage in that, to make that legal. Uh, but the Nazis outdid the Americans in, in the scope and magnitude and went on to uh, the genocidal murder. How did, having lived this story and having studied it and now having produced this, this great documentary series, do you have any thoughts about how these people, these eugenicists, these commodifiers of human beings come to be? Because I'm always intrigued as a journalist. How does somebody get to this point that they, they don't see the face of humanity? They don't see Vera's face. They don't see Christine's face. There's a, a very poignant moment in the truth and reconciliation trials in South Africa following apartheid. And Bishop Tutu, who, who I, I, you know, I, we're not best friends, but, but I, knew him, I knew him well. And I was, in, I was in awe of him. And Bishop Tutu had two police officers sitting before him at the truth and reconciliation. And he asked them about their day job. Their day job was to torture people. And he said to them, do you remember the faces and names of the people that you tortured? And they said, no. 
And he said, well, I'd like to invite you to turn around because I'd like to introduce you to some of the men that you tortured because they never forgot your name and your face. And I thought that that was a very dramatic example of how when people are trafficked, whether it's for labor or sex or whether it's for organ trafficking or medical trafficking, people do not see the faces of a human being. How do they come to be from your point of view, Vera? Well, this is partly training. For one thing, you demonize the other. So we as Jews, you know, were demonized as spreaders of infectious disease. And this was the excuse why we had to be taken out of, you know, normal society, put into ghettos, put into concentration camps, be away from the healthy, you know, folk. When you designate people and, and slowly you wind up demonizing them, uh, you, you really remove them from humanity as, as what you consider yourself part of. They're not part of my human family. They're other, they're despicable. They're something that we have to eradicate. And, you know, the, the language also that is used against whether it's enemies or perceived, uh, well, you have untouchables, you know, in, in India. Sure. 250 you, million Dalits. Can you imagine? So what I want to emphasize is the Nazi mentality is not something strictly German. It's human. As human beings, we have choice. That's what's God-given, our free choice. We can be evil or we can be virtuous. It's our choice. And unfortunately, people are often swept up, you know, by, by a mob or, or by the, 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 uh, our class, you know, our professional uh, organizations. We kind of are being given the okay to discard and discredit that other, whatever the group is. Jews, of course, in, in throughout history have been a, a, quite a bit of the target of this, but others can be made into these, you know, the unwanted as well. And when you do that, yeah, this is interesting. You, because then they really, the perpetrated really cannot see the face of someone as another human being like themselves. It, it, it's, so when we, we draw the parallels to today, uh, somebody who chooses not to be vaccinated becomes oh. the other. Don Lemon says, you know, naughty things that really wouldn't be accepted in civilized society on television as an anchor. Uh, people would talk, talk about, you know, just go ahead and die. Think, I mean, horrible things oh, like yeah. that. Absolutely. Absolutely. People. And the thing about it also, which is especially disturbing, is they will they will do this really over even trivial things. Mm -hmm. I mean, people were going after each other, whoever wasn't wearing a mask or whoever wasn't, quote, social distancing. I mean, you know, it goes back, though, to the experiments. Um, Milgram. Explain that to the audience. I agree with you on that. The Milgram experiment, actually, he... I forgot what was his first name. Stanley, Stanley, Stanley. Michigan. 
Anyway, he wanted actually to find out what in fact made Germans look aside as their Jewish neighbors were being taken and, you know, to their death. Because after a while, people knew. People did know, and and, and it, there's a book that came out a couple of years ago whose title, I, which title I forget, but I've always been intrigued of how people who were non-Jewish in Germany, or even people from the West visiting Germany, hearing about what was happening to the Jews in Germany, and they stood by. I, I, I've just I've been absolutely captivated by what makes people paralyzed that they do not stand up. It, it's like today. Vax injured are real. These are real human beings. I've interviewed them since the beginning of 2021. And people still say to me, Christine, that they're, they don't, they're rare. And I'm thinking, no, they're not. They don't want to believe it. They don't want to believe. And well, for now, they're, they're afraid. But let me go back to Milgram. Mm -hmm. He wanted to find out, really, what made people uh, look the other way and, and pretend they didn't see. And his experiment was very interesting. He had a group of students who were told that behind a screen, they didn't see the other, uh, were people who, who needed to learn lessons. And if they get the wrong answer, there to press a button and they would get a little electric shock. And if they keep getting wrong answers, you keep pressing the button and the electric shock is going to be greater and greater. Well, the ones behind the screen were actually actors. Mm -hmm. And the students were the teachers who were asking the questions and these were really trivial kind of questions spelling stuff like that well by the end of the experiment 60 percent of the actual students were giving lethal thought they were giving lethal electric shocks mm -hmm. in actuality there was no electricity real or anything but they thought and that proved to him how you can get people to do it. Now, how was it that the students went on, you know, accelerating the, the electric shock? Was simply because one person in a white coat stood there, the overall, you know, uh, monitor who kept telling them that's what this experiment's about and you just keep doing it. And just because that person, the authority figure in the room, told them to go on, they did. That's but how does how does that come to be? Is it is is it considered self interest, self survival? No, 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 it's considered you dis you dispense with your own judgment and you listen to authority. So you become disassociative. And, and you and you just look at the medical divinity of the people white people have become look education for the last decades many decades has become a conditioning factory 
not an educational institution. People are, and, and taking it initially actually from the German um, university and especially medical school, you do not question the professor. That, you know, that is one of the, one of the upsides of COVID, I think, is exposing how robotic medicine has become. Yeah. Because we, I, I think for people who have never had a family member uh, involved in a malpractice suit, a lot of people trust. I, I was on a yeah. phone call. Uh, it was a White House Office of Faith-based phone call in mm. mid-February 2021 after uh, Biden's inaugural. And they said on that phone call, it wasn't for the press, but I listened in anyways. They said that they wanted faith-based leaders to get married to black community leaders and unions, which were unnamed at that point in time. And they wanted the churches to open because they had been shut down in 2020 to open to host COVID events mm. because the churches were places of trust and worship in the communities, their words, not mine to quote unquote, their words, to validate COVID vaccinations. So they wanted churches to open up to host those because that was the facade that would draw people in. And that's exactly what happened. We had a lot of churches, a lot of synagogues who opened up, who were paid by the federal government through the state government, Department of Health, you name it, and to roll out the shots. And people fell in line. And I, was, I thought to myself at the time, listening on that phone call, Wow. Wow. This reminds me of the 1930s. Okay. Using the churches as the face. Absolutely. And I, look, one of the things, by the way, we're also going to be coming up with a book. We're not just beginning on that. That's another part of the project, really. Um, that's one of the things that they did. They planned this very carefully into getting the institutions the cultural institutions, the religious institutions, the educational institutions, everyone was bought. Everyone was given, yeah, grants to do exactly that, to help channel everyone into this one groove. Into so one bring, this, bring that back, what's happening today, bring that back into the Holocaust. Because in the, well, in the documentary series, you get into the corporations that... Yeah basically supported the Nazis in the third way. Well, more than supported. You see, they, they, they were receiving financial support and they also were receiving the machinery, the, the um, uh, industrial and military armamentarium. The, Germany didn't have it. Germany did not have the... the uh, war machinery to conduct both a military war and a eugenics uh, genocidal war. Right. So it became a partnership of corporate and state, which is fascism. Yes. Many American corporations, which are still operating today, uh, well, without IBM, IBM in particular, I, I focus on IBM because the technology of identification and surveillance is today so much more sophisticated, right. so much more global, really, because at that time, it was the IBM did census first of 
in Germany and then in the occupied territories as well. So that they identified every single Jew, got their whole family history, so all the relatives, their address with place of, of work, uh, education, all the different organizations they belong to, and their assets. And so when they were ready to deport them a few years later, they were able to confiscate all their assets first. They knew what their assets were. Everything was done on these punch cards. So it was kind of clunky. It was the precursor of the computer, but it did its job. And those tattooed numbers that some survivors had, because it wasn't done all over, only in certain camps, those were IBM IDs. Were those numbers that were tattooed on, on, on the Jewish prisoners, were they actually the numbers that were given to them when they started to do the surveillance uh, two years before they were sent to the camps? I guess so. They each one. In other words, you eliminate names. You eliminate what's human. You talk about face, well, also names. You give a number. And what do you think now? Digital numbers. The digital numbers are far more powerful because you can do everything by remote. You, you, people won't even know who is surveilling them. So let's talk about this film because this film is really historical in nature. It's from real voices of survivors, the children, the grandchildren of, of, of those who died in the Holocaust. Um, we have a generation, and, and this is important, I think, and in, in as this is a global audience, but here in the United States, we have about 330 million citizens. That's our population. Yeah. Of that, we have 75 to 80 million who were born after 1990. So they don't really even know the world that I grew up in. Right. Because, you know, pre-internet like you, That's my true. generation, I was born after the Holocaust, so I could only hear it through my father's generation, um, even even though he was not Jewish, but he was, you know, he was born in 1920. So his generation mm -hmm. fought, fought in the war. <clears throat> How is it that we can communicate to that 70, 75 to 80 million in the States and probably, you know, even in Africa, there's a younger generation. How do we educate people that do not erase history? This can happen again because it's in the nature of man because we are a broken broken species, spiritual. Mm -hmm. Well, that's the point. We have to take back, you know, our individual rights and freedoms. We have to really kind of clean house because all of the institutions and, you know, government is completely under kind of one... Uh, it's going in one direction and it's been captured by these global oligarchs who call the shots on every aspect. And, you know, when you do read uh, the history, historians have, have documented just how, how these takeovers happen. You've got really, for a very long time, the ones who really... Um, are the, you know, the puppeteers who uh, pull the strings, they're behind a curtain. They don't want to be identified. So, uh, I, you know, but I, I think that, the, I think it's, it's, it, 
<clears throat> the transparency, you know, I, I'm not one of these people that buys into nobody knows who's behind door number one. You know we, know, we know who they are. And I think it's time we name them and shame them in terms of the techs being in partnership with the pharmaceutical, being in partnership with creating these private public, you know, uh, so-called charities. Yeah, the private-public partnerships, which, you know, were legalized in 1980 under the Bayh-Dole uh, Act, really, really did essentially uh, make universities, you know, the, the educational institutions, all of them, they became part of the ruling class that went along with essentially runaway capitalism, really. That's what it kind of was. And they have been very tightly uh, in partnership with the military, with the secret agencies, as well as the corporate. You know, we talk about big pharma, big pharma, but big pharma couldn't do any of what they're doing and shovel, really shovel the money in unless the government agencies let them. That's true. It's an apparatus. It's it's a multi-layered apparatus. It's, yeah. And it, it is really those who run government agencies that were supposed to oversee the corporate businesses like pharma are totally captured. And so they're not overseeing. They're together in partnership. They own uh, patents in partnership. They're in business in partnership. And these these so-called vaccines, these experimental gene transfer technology, I mean, all of this is owned by a, a it's a conglomerate, mm -hmm. which is made up both of government, private, and those who don't want their names known at all. Well, I, I think that, you know, for some of these lawsuits that are in motion right now over the COVID policies, <clears throat> the mandated COVID policies, I think it's I think it's important to for the ones that I think are going to make it are the people who are willing to sue not just the corporations, yeah. not just the CEO for being the mouthpiece, but also the members of the board. Because I think the sure. members of the board have violated their fiduciary responsibility to their clients, the public, to their employees, uh, and to their shareholders, actually, because what they did is is probably going to tank some of their stock as the story unfolds about the draconian back and forth between the government and these Fortune 500 companies at the end of the day. Well, one of the interesting thing is there's so much cross-pollination. The same people are on, on five boards. <laughs> so they, they, you know, in other words, they can uh, actually affect that the same policies are adopted by all these different companies. So as somebody who has lived this, um, you know, as a child, a survivor of a Holocaust, when you take a look at the direction of the world and where we're, where we're heading, unless people wake up, what is it going to take for moral courage? Where are the Bonhoeffers? We have a whole series called "Where You Know Where Are the Bonhoeffers" on our uh, platform, on our global network. Where are they today? Because I'm not seeing church leaders. I'm not seeing rabbis speak up. You know what happened in Israel? I was astounded, astounded by what happened in Israel when they're 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 at their second booster when they're still doing the rollout here in the United States. And I thought to myself. What happened? Did these people forget their history? 
I'm afraid. I mean, did you find that shocking? Well, what happened to Israel? I'll tell you. Yes, I do. And uh, I, you know, it's it is really um, after uh, it was still um, the war, really. But I actually had the best part of my childhood with three years in Israel before it was Israel it was Palestine. Uh, and at that time, it was a completely, you know, different country, really. Nobody was very rich. Nobody was very poor. I mean, for me, it was paradise. I I lived on, on a farm, which my aunt and uncle ran, which was essentially what you would call today a, um, uh, what do you call it? Um, you know, no GMOs or anything, no pesticides and all that sort of thing. No, uh, no Monsanto farm. Yeah, no, no, no Monsanto. There wasn't anything like that. And yeah, it was a difference, you know. So as I say, I have very good memories of, actually it was my my healing time from, from mm -hmm. the hell. Uh, so what I believe is Israel, in a sense, the, the corrupt government only proves the point. Jews are no different from anyone else. And they can be, they can have just as much of a corrupted government running their country as the rest of us, you know, the rest of the world. This is, unfortunately, this is what it is. And democracy really requires people, the people to be involved. And I think the reason that things have gone awry so badly is because people have, in fact, deferred to authority. People aren't taking, uh, you know, they're not participating as a democracy requires people to participate. And so it winds up being corrupted. I mean, the very fact that the Israeli prime minister who really, he was actually on criminal charges. He's got away only because he was he was a prime minister. And then when he wasn't prime minister, they still didn't go after him. I guess he still had a lot of connections there. But he actually signed off the entire Israeli population, their DNA, for heaven's sakes, to Burla, to Pfizer. That's right. How the That's hell did right. that happen? It is, it is, it's an extraordinary story coming out of COVID. And yeah. the Minister of Health knew about the uh, adverse of, of, uh, adverse effects, events um, from the Pfizer shots. And yet they, they became a laboratory and Bula, you know, bragged about it. Israel is the world's laboratory. How the heck do you want to be guinea pigs? A laboratory. And they don't, but they trust, I, you know. Is it a trust or is it an ignorance or is it one of these issues where people forget just how bad we can be as, as, as you know, as members they of the human rights? And, and look, I've got some family there and their attitude was, well, we trust the Minister of Health. What do you mean you trust? You shouldn't trust anything or anyone without verifying that they're trustworthy. But then again, do you, th do you think that, uh, I mean... This is done consciously without a conscience all over the world. We have these people who represent the U.S. pharmaceutical 
companies producing these COVID quote unquote shots, distributing internationally to places like Israel. Pfizer took over Israel, Pfizer took over Rwanda, Pfizer took over Uruguay. And I mean, some people ha have challenged the system and they've been shut down. How, what is it going to take to wake up people other than people should actually watch your documentary series because it's very enlightening and, and, and it's about truth. But what is it that you it's going to take, Vera, for people you to know, wake up? If you remember Martin Luther King, the March on Washington, it made a difference. People need to get off their, you know, their, their ears. Absolutely. It, it will not be given. We will not be given our freedom back. We have to take it. And well, once, once you lose it, it's never going to be given back. This to time, okay, there's a huge difference between then and now, and it has to do really with the technology. And that is that if people go along and accept the digital ID, that puts them into a digital concentration camp from which there is no exit ever. No, no, but no rescuers, no, no escape, no hiding place, no attic, no basement, no haystack, nothing. The digital ID surveillance technology is 24 hours, seven days a week. There is no escape. So better not to get into that camp by asserting your right not to take, not to get the digital ID, not to accept a one world currency. Just say no. You have to, you have to join groups that are working on your behalf, but they can't do it alone. All right. Say no to the... WHO, which is trying to eliminate all nation, national boundaries, everything, just one, one world, one government, one currency. That is the worst that the world had ever seen. So and that's the gate. That's the gateway into the 21st century absolutely. Fourth Reich concentration camp. And far, yeah, it it uses the same. You know, the plan was that that's the startup, but now they are so much more advanced technologically. And unfortunately, technology really for the last 80 years has taken over every aspect of the universities. That's why you're not, that's why there's no philosophy, there's no ethics taught, there's no history taught. You don't need it, right? You just need technology. Well, this is where it got us to hell, really. It's the gateway to hell. Vera, thank you so much. How do people find the, your documentary? Tell us you're going to write a book. You're having it translated. Well, it's what what uh, languages is it in now? Uh, well, English, of course, and German and Spanish, and more, more to come. More, more to, to come. come. Many more to come. Yes, and just go to neveragainisnowglobal.com, and you'll get there. And you know, on our website. And you'll be led to all the others. The trailers, you can watch it at your own leisure. How many? And I know it's hard. Uh, but I think in addition to learning things that you really didn't know, and, and then things will come together for you, each individual, is also to, to see how 
people who went through it and whose lives were affected by, you know, parents and grandparents. In particular, it's very moving to see the grandchildren. You know, one of the grandchildren is his grandparents were Nazis and they were brought over on Operation Paperclip. And it's very interesting what he has to say, both about his grandparents and about COVID now. You'll learn a lot from people, just real people telling you their what's in their heart. I think that's that's what will remain with you. Vera, God bless you for doing this project. I know it's your first documentary, but it, it is it, it's a it's a wonderful production and five part series, and everybody needs to go and see this, especially the younger generation. They need to hear from the voices of history who have lived history in such a dramatic period of time and how it's affected people in the subsequent generations. Vera Sharab, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for this conversation.